Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Today, we'll be chatting with Chris Brooks. He's a Democratic Assemblyman who knows a lot about energy issues. Unlike me, Riley Snyder knows a lot about energy issues, and he's here to help me with the questions. As always, we'll close with some to and fro on issues of the day between myself and the Indies managing editor, Elizabeth Thompson. We'll chat about a councilman's indictment, a DMV contract disaster, and the attorney general passing on a pot letter. So let's get started with my recap of some of the weeks in the headlines from Nevada Independent. The week began with Las Vegas Councilman Ricky Barlow announcing his resignation after pleading guilty to a federal crime. We were first with the news, which is not all that surprising. Barlow had been under investigation for 18 months or so for using campaign contributions for personal use. Now, we still don't know what the deal was that he made with the feds. Does he have to rat out someone else to get a reduced sentence? We'll find out eventually. Riley Snyder had a great find. The state Supreme Court is supposed to only have five justices now instead of seven, a trade-off for an intermediate appeals court being formed. But... Riley discovered the sneaky lawmaker snuck in a repeal of that provision into a budget bill in 2015 so the high court can still be a septet. Very clever. And did I mention? Sneaky. Michelle Rendell scooped that Adam Laxalt is the only attorney general from a state with legalized pot not to sign on to a letter to Congress asking lawmakers to fix the industry's lack of access to banking. Laxalt had no explanation, later saying it was, quote, premature to sign on to the letter. His gubernatorial foes and others jumped all over the story to attack the attorney general. Marijuana was legalized here in 2016. What exactly, pray tell, is premature? Jackie Valley had one of the best leads of the week on her story about a town hall and a search for a new superintendent to head the Clark County School District. Here's what she wrote. The first town hall meeting regarding the hunt for the Clark County School District's next superintendent started rather inauspiciously Tuesday evening. Why? As Jackie told us, because a representative of the search firm asked attendees to describe the district's strengths. Instead, Jackie wrote, silence ensued. Let's hope none of the applicants read the indie. Wait, wait, I, I, I didn't mean that. We revved up our Follow the Money series this week with two stories about campaign contributions. One by the team found $7 million already going to gubernatorial candidates with a fair amount of bet hedging by big players. You should read it and check out the cool chart. Megan Messerly also found that a few months after the legislature passed a drug transparency bill, the drug industry was all in for Republicans, including helping to fund a group playing in those now-stalled recall elections of Democratic state senators. Well, I'll have a lot more of these follow-the-money stories to come. Finally, Riley had the most provocative story of the week about a company that bought 67,000 acres in northern Nevada near the Tesla Gigafactory. The company's called Blockchains LLC, a reference to the technology behind cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin. I have to say, I still don't understand blockchain or Bitcoin or, some days, Riley. But it's a good story with long-term ramifications. We'll be back in a moment with Chris Brooks. We're back on Indie Matters with our guest, Chris Brooks. He was elected to the Assembly in 2016 after a career in the energy industry. He's a strong proponent of renewable energy, and he was neck deep in the legislative fray. 
uh, last session. Chris Brooks, welcome to Indie Matters. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I'll start, and I'll let Riley uh, do, do the heavy lifting and a lot of this stuff. But That's how uh, it typically works, right, John? That is generally how it works. You're exactly right, uh, Riley. Uh, welcome, by the way, Riley. I should, have, I should have formally welcomed you as well. Yeah, it's been a long time, but happy to be back. I'm glad you're back on the, on, on the podcast. So Chris Brooks, let's, let's talk about one story uh, that we've uh, had in, in, in the Independent recently, and that's that Envy Energy, after playing this game of pretending to be Switzerland on the so-called Energy Choice Initiative, is now clearly uh, building up the armaments to go really after it in its second time on the ballot uh, this year. It passed overwhelmingly three to one or so, I believe, uh, last time. What do you make of that? You know, I, I don't know if, if this is just them saying publicly what they've always felt privately or if there was a change of heart within within the company. But, you know, this affects their company and their, their business model directly. And so I think it's appropriate that they address it. And I'm glad to, I'm glad to see that they're getting out there and, and, and discussing some of the merits of, of the different arguments for and against. Is it a good initiative, the Energy Choice Initiative? You know, I, I have one primary goal, and that's to represent the people in Nevada and to make sure that ratepayers – um, are, are taken care of, especially those who 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 need it the most and, and, and can afford uh, any rate increases the, the most, and also to further the agenda of that that our, our state has put out for us on advancing renewable energy in our state. And if if this initiative accomplishes those things, then then I'm for it. If it doesn't, then then it is my responsibility as as an elected official representing the, the people of Nevada to to oppose it. And so I just want to see a, a robust conversation in the, in the governor's committee or commission and the interim energy committee and in the public about the merits of it. And and I'm having a hard time getting answers. And so that's that's my biggest concern, and biggest frustration. But we should we should lay it all out there, see if it's good, if it's bad, what the costs are going to be, if they're going to be costs and um, and and then and then share that with the people of Nevada before the next vote. And I'm a little frustrated about kind of how slow that that process is moving. I'll let Riley follow up on that in, in, in a minute if, you, if he wants to. But did you vote for it in 2016? Uh, I, I did not. You did not? And I, I just I, – I at the time did not feel that it was the best way to advance um, uh, the, the agenda of, of the state of Nevada. And I didn't think that it protected the ratepayers. Um, since then, I, I don't have the luxury really of being for it or against it. I, I really just want to find out the facts. Riley, did we know that he voted against it? I don't think we knew that. <laughs> uh, so we're, we're making the, news this is true. on you can, the. You, 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 can, you can leave now, Riley. One thing I want to talk to you about, Assemblyman, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and thank you for actually dressing up nicely. John and I are dressed kind of slobby today. Riley, um, come on, you don't have to reveal that. I'm sorry. Um, one thing our, our viewers might not know is that there are kind of two bodies in the state that are studying this um, initiative. For those who don't know, this is a, a ballot question. It passed in 2016, about 72 to 27 percent. It basically fundamentally restructures Nevada's energy market so that instead of everyone paying your bill to Envy Energy every month, you would get to choose a, a different retail provider. They would have more flexibility. We would essentially create an energy market in the state. Now, even though it hasn't passed yet, it has to pass again in 2018 to take effect, there are two groups that are kind of studying how to do this. Not a lot of states have done this since the 1990s. I've written a ton about this, so go back on the Nevada Independent and just search for energy, and you'll probably find an explanation of what this does. But you are on this 25-member commission that the governor called into place, and you're also on a smaller body, the Legislative uh, Energy Committee, and they had their first meeting recently. Can you talk a little bit about what those two um, 
entities are studying, what they're trying to find out, what if, are you finding out different information about the Energy Choice Initiative um, from different sources in both of those committees? How's that working out? So the, the governor's appointed committee on energy choice, 25 members that represent a broad spectrum of, of you know, interest in the state. I'm, there's four legislators of which I'm one on there. And it has the task of, of talking about and investigating the, the energy choice, the whole matter of energy choice, and then making a recommendation. Um, the, both the ballot initiative and, and the governor's committee are, uh, are, are tasked with recommending to the legislature. The ballot initiative said the legislature must act, and the committee wants to make recommendation to the legislature on, on how to enact this if and when it passes. And um, the, they, they, the, so they're very two very separate um, processes. The, the leg, interim legislative committee is going to take, I believe, take some of the, the information that's found out through the committee on, on energy choice, the governor's committee, as well as the third process that's going on right now, the open investigatory docket at the Public Utilities Commission that is investigating this issue as well. Take all that into consideration and potentially put forth some ideas and, and bill drafts for legislation in the next uh, legislative session, the 2019 legislative session. So we have a very clear um, uh, uh, agenda, and that is to listen to uh, the report, any any venue where information is coming out and then try to come up with legislation that addresses the information that we found out. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Nevada, as we've discussed before, is a very unique state in that we have a 120-day session. You are not a full-time legislator. You um, have another full-time job. Many of your colleagues are in the same situation. Do you think there's enough work going on? Is there enough studying being done of the Energy Choice Initiative, the possible effects? This is going to involve rewriting whole sections of Nevada law. Just it's a big change, and it's a lot to sort of take on in 120 days. Do you feel like the legislature is going to be up for it if it does pass and you have to deal with it in 2019? Well, I, I think that there's absolutely no way we're going to get it done in 120 days. Um, and I think that, that you know, that, that's a larger question about whether our 120-day legislature that meets every other year has the capacity to tackle things like this. And, you know, I have, you know, strong opinions about that. But um, I think that that... that this ballot initiative, it's back up again in November. If it passes, it, it tells the legislature they have to basically tear down everything we've built and build something new by 2023. And, and that gives us three legislative sessions to, to work on this if it passes in 18. I want to tell our listeners, just as by way of disclosure, that Envy Energy is a major donor uh, to, to the Nevada Independent. Having said that, I, I, I'm not. I'm fascinated by this whole energy issue in this sense. Uh, it, it's incredibly complex. Uh, you know that Riley has, has done some of the best reporting I've ever seen in this state. He's gotten up to speed on this. But for most, for too many people, I think it's black and white. They hate the power company. Most people hate their power company, right? Especially in, in, here in Las Vegas in June, July, and August, they they hate the power company. So they see the idea of choice and they think, wow, finally there's going to be competition. Competition is going to bring uh, my prices down. But even you, who are clearly an advocate of newer kinds of energy and, and, and envy energy and others being more progressive in their thinking, you said today that you voted against it. You're worried about protections for the consumer, are you not? That's my biggest concern. I, if, you know, the, and, and there's always winners and there's always losers and in, in when a deal like this goes through. And, and my Biggest concern is that um, the, the industries in the in the state that create the the jobs and create the revenues for our state are protected and thrive and are profitable. 
But at the same time, we have to make sure that the ratepayers and the, the typical, you know, the average ratepayer in the state of Nevada is not harmed through that process. And so when you look at a, an open market, um, deregulated or re-regulated or unregulated, as I've heard it described in many different ways, depending on which side of the issue you're on, um, who protects the rural ratepayer? Who protects the, the ratepayer that is the least profitable to serve and the most expensive to serve? Under our current situation, whether you're in a, a muni or a co-op or you're in NV Energy Service Territory, for the right to have grant, be granted this service territory, you have the obligation to serve every consumer. And a lot of those costs are aggregated and a lot of those costs are subsidized from one ratepayer to the next. And whether, you know, urban ratepayers generally subsidize the rural ratepayer. Large uh, industrial and, and, and commercial ratepayers tend to subsidize the residential ratepayer. And if we are going to take apart the system, the, the rate structures of our, of our state, and then build something new that is completely market-driven, as the advocates for this, this uh, energy choice initiative are, are, are um, uh, arguing for, I, I, I have a hard time um, understanding how we are going to make sure that, that the, the multifamily um, tenant, that the low-income ratepayer, that people in senior homes, that people that are in the rurals, the people who use very little but are expensive to serve, how does their rates not go up? And so if, if, we, if the, the argument is that rates will go down for the largest consumers in our state, I mean, they're the advocates for this, by the way, then how do we make sure that we balance the protections of consumers and the goals of our state to invest in job-creating industries like renewable energy with that, you know, with, with this choice? I, I, I'm, I just need to see more facts, and I'm really been kind of frustrated at, at the, um, the, the lack of of actual data that's out there to support this. When you say data out there, you, you, I guess your concern is that, that uh, there's not going to be any certainty. Nobody's going to know. I mean, the legislature is going to have to address this either way. Do you think this was written in too vague a manner? And, and, and a second question on that, and one of you gentlemen will correct me if I have this wrong. Didn't Envy Energy announce, uh, uh, to your point, that they're not going to be the provider of last resort if this goes through? So that goes directly to your point of like, is everybody going to be covered, Right. Well, well, yeah, and, and they, they announced that they're not going to be. I think they, they maybe misspoke and said that they, they don't have a desire to be okay. because um, that is part of the process that the state determines. And so, so you can tell them they have to be. Well, what you're saying. I mean, if, if there is a, a order through how the legislature interprets energy choice, if it passes, that they have to divest of certain investments, well, there's a conversation that they're a party to and so are we. And there can be no takings in that. We have to make sure that they're made whole. And there's a lot of conversation with the utility and the state if we were to go ahead and, and, and restructure this whole market that, you know, that the state is quite frankly in control of. And so um, that would be something that we would discuss and negotiate. But like, I, I think that that was, you know, um, I, I don't know that that should have been taken literally or at face value, but obviously they don't. I think they were reacting and, you know, possibly rightfully so. But but I, I, we, I think we get to determine who's going to be the provider of last resort and how that looks. But, but your concern really then, and, and the reason I assume that you voted against it and you're not sure what you're going to do this time is, is because there's uncertainty that's created. You're not sure if the consumers are going to be protected. But you can't be sure of that, right? No, no matter what happens, right? That's true. And so, you know, we would be responsible for for setting up something 
quite frankly, that hasn't ever happened before. We're not, we would be the only state that's done this in roughly 20 years, the only state who's done this by a, a constitutional amendment, the only state who's done this who is not in an existing wholesale power market, which is very important. Um, we, we, you know, a lot of the proponents for this keep comparing us to Texas. Texas is, is 25 times bigger than we are from, from a dollar's population and energy consumption standpoint. Um, that creates a diversity of load, a diversity of um, uh, uh, generation that, that is a market in and to itself. We are, you know, 3 million people. We, have, uh, we use the same amount of electricity as, as LADWP, one municipal utility in the state of, of, of California, and we aren't part of any greater market. So there's the, it, we would, it would be hard for us to, to justify why uh, market or why providers would come here, set up shop um, virtually, and try to go serve the, the, the lowest um, uh, <coughs> the lowest consuming energy consumers in the entire state without being part of this vast, vast wholesale market that, that makes that a lot more feasible. So we are so different from all of these other models that we're looking at, and which is not unique for Nevada, but we would have to kind of start from scratch. And the, and the Nevada legislature would have to be the one that created that mechanism that starts from scratch and doing that in a manner that didn't raise rates or hurt ratepayers. I don't know that we would know that we did it wrong until we did it wrong. And so, and you know, um, I, that, that is the concern I have. It is not impossible by any means, but it is a daunting task. You're certainly not reassuring anybody <laughs> by what you're saying. Go ahead, Riley. Um, you know, I guess just to play devil's advocate a little bit, um, you know, this 25-member committee that you're on, you know, the, the big group of friends with Lieutenant Governor Mark Hutchison and representatives from casino companies, the AARP, basically everyone we could think of uh, that has a stake in the energy process, they've been meeting for what seems like close to a year now. They've brought in folks from Texas, from Pennsylvania, from all sorts of different states that have to um, some extent or another successfully deregulated, gone into this retail market structure. A lot of them haven't really had a lot of these concerns. I've talked to a lot of these folks who said, this does work if you set it up right. We're not going to like, you know, just totally unregulate and you'll have, you know, hundreds of wires going from telephone poles. Um, do you, you, you've hinted a few times that you don't feel like you've gotten enough data or information during these commission meetings. What, what's lacking? What do you want to hear from you know, the, the proponents of this? Well, I mean, we haven't yet discussed what the – if, in fact, we, we um, have NV Energy divest of all um, their generation assets, which include, you know, um, dozens of long-term contracts for energy and renewable energy, and – what that cost is. So that there's a, a price tag there. That, that should be the simplest thing, the first thing we discussed. When we, we put that on the table at that Energy Choice Committee, there were some in the room who voted that down. They don't want to talk about cost until after the vote. That, to me, is, is, is not responsible. I think the very first thing we should be discussing is if, if, if the proponents of this see a, a, a model that, that envisions that Envy Energy has to divest of all of their generation, and I think you've you would agree that that is the model that is being proposed, that what is that going to cost? What is that going to cost? And then what will it cost us, the ratepayers, over what period of time to pay for that? Is the state going to backstop that? Are we going to do it through our bonding capacity? Are we going to spread it across rates? Is it going to be an adder that we put on top of rates? I think that is the first and, and, and most fundamental issue we should be discussing because then we have to, if there is no financial benefit for the average ratepayer in the state of Nevada, 
Why are we having this conversation? And so we need to, I think that's the, we might find out that it's a great deal, but let's talk about it and let's put cost out there first and foremost, because that's really what people are concerned with. And that that's what will most affect our economy either, you know, for, for the better or for the worse. Uh, I guess what I'm wondering, uh, again, because this is so complicated, and m- many of the companies that I'm talking about to talk about are also major donors to the Nevada Independent, I should mention this, who are behind this. Um, a lot of them essentially got sick of, of, of NV Energy, dealing with NV Energy. They thought it, w- they thought it was much more cost effective for them to, to, to get out. Uh, uh, from under NV Energy. You saw this story that, that, that we had uh, just this week, I think it was, the time all runs together for me, that the Clark County School District now wants to get out from under NV Energy. Explain the economics of this to, 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 to our listeners, Assemblyman Brooks. How does this work? How does the utility survive if all of their major um, uh, ratepayers are gone? Well, yeah, I mean, that is supposed to be what the Public Utilities Commission is taking into consideration when they calculate the exit fees for a large consumer to leave. And a large consumer is making a business decision whether or not uh, it makes sense to come up with that upfront pricing or, excuse me, that upfront payment that is supposed to pay for, you know, the cost that the utility has incurred or will incur based upon them being part of the system and now leaving. Um, If... You know, obviously, it's made financial sense for some of them to say, you know, rates are where they're at, and and there's a, a basically a glut of energy in the wholesale markets right now. I'll pay this large upfront cost, and I'll go out on the markets and and and, and negotiate that. These are very large, sophisticated consumers who who generally set up basically trading desks within their own their own operations, and then partner with with, with large corporations that do this, you know, trade energy on the markets, and and they make that decision. Um, the school district making that decision, that's interesting. I don't know that, that you know, um, I, I don't know that they've made that decision yet. I know there's Did it been, surprise you? You it, look a little surprised. It, it did surprise me, actually. And um, I, I see large single loads that have very sophisticated commodity and purchasing um, uh, uh, responsibilities going out into the markets and doing this. Um, you know, municipals and, and the school district and thing like that, things like that kind of surprised me. But I understand their motivation. I mean, if they're frustrated with, you know, their current situation and they think they can save some money, it's either their, you know, their, their responsibility to their shareholders or responsibility in this case to students of, of the school district to go out and, and try to, to pursue something better. Um, what I am concerned with is are, are, are they, you know, getting all the facts and, and you know, are, are we locking in um, some costs over time um, that are set for 25 years when when we don't exactly know where costs are going to go um, otherwise up or down? And so it's just it, it's it's I think that they just need to step, you know, to, to get some folks to take a look at it, investigate it thoroughly and don't make any you know decisions before I think all of the facts are presented. But I understand their motivation. I mean. Everybody wants to save money. Do you understand the frustration that some of these major companies who who are pushing this initiative have felt towards the utility over time? Oh, I certainly do. I've been dealing with utility for 17 <laughs> years in my career and um, and uh, been in the legislature um, working on issues since 2003. Um, I have been on the opposite side of, of our utility as many times, probably more times than I've been on the same side. And so I get it. I get it. There's some frustration there. Um, and, you know, uh, that's... My con- my concern isn't to to preserve the utility. It, it, my cons- my concern is to to make sure that the ratepayers in Nevada are protected. And 
Um, you know, I, I get their frustration. I think a lot of it is um, based on, you know, how things were done years ago. There's a new administration over there and, and the regime that's in there right now is has really kind of, I think, behaved a little differently. And um, and a lot of this is based on a misinformation. You know, I hear all the time, oh, my rates are going up. They, they, they haven't gone up in, in quite some time. And, oh, we're so expensive here regionally we're not regionally we're below average and so there are some things that nobody likes paying a big power bill and and quite frankly envy energy hasn't handled some issues of late in in uh, in, in the smartest way and i use you know like the rooftop solar example how did i know that was what you're and, talking about and so you know <laughs> it, it, you take that frustration with the average voter and and you take the frustration with large consumers and it was a perfect storm for this ballot initiative that that got that got run, and so it you know it's uh, I I just want to to dig in on the details before we make a a, a decision that's really hard to undo. Um, Assemblyman, you outside of Energy World are a Democrat. Um, I'm curious to get your take. I wrote about this a little bit last week that this uh, the tax bill that the Republicans in Congress passed reducing corporate tax rates. Um, is going to have a benefit for Nevada ratepayers, presumably. NV Energy filed paperwork with the Public Utilities Commission last week, and they said they wanted to um, have them relook at their general rate case. This is a process where the the PUC, the energy regulators in the state, set rates or uh, set rates after NV Energy applies for it. It goes in three year cycles. For whatever reason, it just happened to coincide with the passage of this tax bill. So. NV Energy's corporate tax rate has gone down like 20 points. Presumably, they're going to make a lot of money out of this and. The argument that several people have put forward, including the utility, they said they want to relook at this, is that those benefits should be passed on to consumers. Um, I'm curious to get your take on this as someone who presumably opposed the Republican tax bill. Does this make it worth it? Is this a benefit that that comes out of it, or are our electric, or do you think our electricity bills are going to go down because this this passed? You know, if there is a benefit realized um, from any tax bill or uh, if that it should be passed on to the consumer and the Public Utilities Commission of Nevada has the responsibility, the legal and statutory responsibility to take a look at costs incurred by a utility in their course of doing business and tax is one of those things. And so um, they uh, it, they look at that every rate case. And so. Um, when they set the, uh, the 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 rate of return and they set the allowable they they approve allowable expenses, their tax burden is is part of that calculation. So if their taxes go down, most certainly our Public Utilities Commission of Nevada should say, um, you know, pass that on to consumers. The, the most interesting thing I found I, I thought in that whole issue was that our Attorney General Laxalt wrote a letter or signed on to a letter um, circumventing our Public Utilities Commission asking FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, to get involved in that conversation. So, you know, I'd like him to sign on some other letters as well. well on pot, perhaps? Uh, but you, you were surprised that he wrote that letter because it circumvented the normal process, another great Riley, Riley Snyder find? That was a great find, and it was, you know, the only – Attorney General in the, in the United States who did sign on to one of those letters. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about why that was unique? Because I think it kind of people see, you know, Laxalt doesn't sign on the letter and then just kind of skin over the rest of the story. But this was a letter signed by 18 states. They were all done by consumer advocates. Our consumer advocate, who was in the AG's office, Ernest Figueroa, signed on to this letter. But so did Laxalt. Why? Why is that an issue? Why did that, you know, raise your eyebrows when you when you saw that? Uh, I just thought it was, you know, just politicizing some, uh, trying to trying to make some some. Uh, get some traction out of a, a make political issue that should have been a rates issue. 
In other words, take credit for 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 doing this for his campaign for governor. I just I, I want to wrap here. I'm, I'm going to ask one, one other energy question. Maybe Riley uh, has a political question he can ask uh, at the end, since uh, we can't forget that you are a politician. There was an announcement that that, that rippled through the energy world. Uh, the the Trump administration saying it's going to put a 30 percent tariff on on solar panels. I gather they could have put it. They could have gone all the way up to 50 percent uh, based on the law. I want to read a quote to you. Uh, assemblyman. This was a trade action brought by private companies. They chose a kind of midpoint in the range of alternatives. It could have been handled differently, should have been handled differently, but it's not an utter catastrophe. Do you know who said that? Of all people, Al Gore. So Mr. Uh, Inconvenient Truth says no big deal. Well, I mean, I didn't hear no big deal on that, but I did hear <laughs> it could have been worse. And, yeah. and um, you know, I... It, it, to me, this is just a very kind of cynical um, uh, attempt to throw some red meat to his his fossil fuel base. And you know, this is these are two foreign companies that have con that have factories in the in the United States that filed a trade action, and 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 then he and his administration with the the the, the um, uh, trade regulators put a thirty percent tariff on this. I, I this is you know at a time when we're creating tens of thousands of jobs in our state, hundreds of thousands of jobs across this country. We should be putting uh, you know uh, our, our foot into the into the gas pedal, and instead, this administration is trying to slow down the progress of of the clean energy um, industry. And so I think that you know there's a lot of justifications made for why he did it. I think that it, it this is just more of the same from this administration of of trying to go backwards on energy and um, and to try to appease some of the folks that he made some promises in coal country who are hurting right now and and need help and this isn't helping them. This is not going to bring coal back. Isn't this that, is just going to hurt solar. Isn't that a canard though that the, the that I've heard so many times that the solar industry creates all these jobs? I mean, a lot of these are not permanent jobs, right? Um, I, I'm, I, I don't know of any permanent jobs but um, in, in any industry, but these jobs are um, – they, they're creating uh, tens of thousands of jobs in this state. And while they're, the individual plant they work on is not permanent sometimes, they go to the next one and they go to the next one. And it creates this sustainable industry in our state that we are now seen as kind of a, um, a hub for renewable energy development and construction and, and, and folks within the region – um, are, are working on all these plants as they get built out. So while there aren't a tremendous amount of long-term jobs associated with an individual project, they have created 10, 000, or thousands of long-term sustainable construction, engineering, and development jobs. And so, I, I, you know, no, no job is permanent. As Riley, as, Riley, do, do you believe that the editor of the Nevada Independent is not a permanent job? Do, do you think <laughs> um, I don't want to comment on that. Um, <laughs> so I, go ahead, Riley, wrap I, it up. I, I do want to ask, we've just gone over... Uh, what seems like not that much energy stuff because it is so complicated. Like two final questions. Um, during the last legislative session, you did sponsor um, a bill to raise the renewable portfolio standard up from Nevada's current level. I think it's twenty five percent by twenty thirty. It's been a while since I've done these stories. Up to a, a goal of eighty, but a, really a mandate of forty. Um, the governor ended up vetoing the bill on the very last day he could, kind of in the last hour. Um, many of the conversations we had during the legislative session revolved around you wanted to push this. Not because it was like a feel-good type thing, but because you wanted to get renewable plants, solar plants built in the ground um, before the expiration of the solar investment tax credit. Are we missing the boat right now in terms of building solar plants? Um, do you think NV Energy is doing enough 
on their own. But uh, I'm just curious to get your take now. It's been a couple months since that that veto happened. You know, I think we are missing the boat. I mean, we had a position of leadership in this in this uh, in our state, and other other states looked to us and and copied some of our policies. And now they've surpassed us. And not only have other states in our country surpassed us, other countries have surpassed us in that leadership position. We um, had an opportunity to um, continue to grow this high-paying, uh, very uh, um, uh, well-employing um, industry in our state, and w- we missed it. And and that's unfortunate. And um, but we are there are deals being done in spite of it, and it's just uh, become a little bit more difficult and and less predictable for investors to invest in the state of Nevada on renewable energy projects. So again, like like uh, Al Gore said, it's not the end of the world, but um, you know, it, I feel we could have we could have done better. Mm-hmm. So what's next on RPS? This is sort of a very I think tangible thing for people to understand. Is this something you're going to try and bring up at the next session, or is there anything else you're doing in the interim to sort of address it? Uh, I mean, I've been approached by um, uh, a, a lot of parties that are interested in seeing um, an RPS be expanded in the state, and. Uh, uh, you know, there was such such a great amount of interest in it during the legislative session. Uh, the hearing rooms were packed. People stayed for hours and hours on, on some of these hearings. I've gotten phone calls, emails. There is a lot of popular support amongst Nevadans to expand our renewable portfolio standard. And um, I plan on bringing it back in the next legislative session and uh, some version of it. And, and, you know, we'll continue to work through the interim on expanding it. Yeah, in 2019, if you are returned to the assembly, and um, no matter what, we're going to have a new governor, given that Governor Sandoval is termed out. Do you have any idea of who you want to support, either in the Democratic primary or just for governor for the next four years? Well, I mean, you narrowed it down when you said the Democratic primary. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, I, I think we have two great choices. Uh, I've worked with uh, Chris G. my um, entire career um, in this. Um, the first time I ever went to Carson City at all ever from Las Vegas, born and raised in Vegas, was in 2003 to testify on a Chris G. Renewable Energy Bill. And, um, and you know, I had just started a, a brand new solar company a few years earlier, and this was helping to create jobs. And so I was up there in support of it and testifying on it. Um, I've known her ever since and worked with her ever since. Um, Steve Sisolak has been great for our economy down here in Southern Nevada. And so I, I think we have two great choices. And um, I, I, I will, the next time I see both of them, Ask them how they feel on the issues that I uh, care so much about. Mm-hmm. So, you know, your campaign finance reports came out, everyone else's uh, does on January 15th. And you did give, um, I think, $2,500 to Chris June Kiliani. Should we not read into that? Are you not making an endorsement or is that not a sign of support? Uh, I, I, I support Chris in anything that she does. And she was very supporting of me when I told her that I wanted to run for office. And she was one of my earliest supporters, both uh, – um, um, in, in giving me in words of encouragement and financial support for my campaign. So um, I, uh, you know, I think this is going to be a wonderful primary. I think we have two great candidates, but I am, you know, I will support Chris in anything that she does and think that, you know, she's one of my closest and dearest friends. So that's an endorsement. Money is an endorsement and the gushing is just is an endorsement, right? I mean, I'll let people read read into that uh, what, what, what they will. Chris Brooks, this has been a great uh, discussion. Uh, the, your understanding of energy and Riley's understanding of energy uh, actually educated me once again, and I, and I really appreciate uh, your willingness to come on and talk to us. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for paying attention. All right. Thank you, Riley, for those great questions. Thank you, Mr. Editor. <laughs> Well,
Welcome back to Indie Matters, the podcast of the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit news site at nevadaindependent.com. Joining me now, as she always does at the end of the podcast, to discuss issues of the day, Elizabeth Thompson, who's the managing editor and the person who really runs the Nevada Independent. Welcome. Hello, John. So I referred earlier, and, and, and I actually misspoke. I said it was an indictment. Uh, uh, Ricky Barlow, uh, Las Vegas councilman, uh, everyone thought he was going to get indicted. He didn't. He ended up making a deal of some kind that we're not quite sure of with the feds. This dramatic announcement, he called a press conference in, in City Hall. It's kind of weird, actually, right there on, 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 the, on the dais at City Hall, and announced he was resigning. What questions do we still have about this, do you think, Elizabeth? Well, we a lot of questions. I mean, we know the FBI had to raid his house to get a hold of the information they needed in order to bring these charges, and that was part of the investigation. So I have all kinds of questions about what exactly did they find in terms of correspondence, in terms of money transactions, emails, texts, phone records, whatever the case may be. I'd like to know over what time did uh, these nefarious actions transpire? Is there more to it than we've been told? Are there other charges uh, pending? And, you know, I have to say about that apology, as profuse and well-written as it was, and I'm always glad when a public official is willing to simply acknowledge wrongdoing and say I was wrong and not make a litany of excuses. I, th- I thought it was well handled. We also have to point out that we all know this has been cooking for years and that he did not come forward uh, to acknowledge any wrongdoing. And in other words, he didn't preempt uh, quite the this, contrary. Which... Quite the contrary. When it came out, his lawyer said he said he's done nothing wrong. Right. And now, and now, and you can contrast that with the with the with the right. profuse apology. So he, you know, to... now that the charges have been brought, and no, no doubt his attorneys have been shown the the brunt of the evidence brought against him, he has had no choice but to resign uh, and apologize. So I, I don't want to give him too much credit for that apology. Uh, the the question I think a lot of people have, and I talked to another elected official about this, is the. Where there's smoke, there's fire. In other words, if there's smoke around Ricky Barlow, does that extend to other uh, local elected officials? Is the deal that he made with the feds, and we don't know anything about it yet, extend to, okay, you don't have to go to prison for as long if you can give us someone else, which is a standard kind of uh, tactic. And we've seen all kinds of scandals in local government here over the years uh, in southern Nevada. You've had Ruben Kiwin, who who is now uh, 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 disgraced because of the sexual harassment allegations not running again. He's a close friend of Barlow's, his political consulting firm that he was associated with. Uh, the Ramirez Group uh, 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 was retained friendly with Barlow, as were others. Uh, uh, you had an NAACP president who, who was roped into. I guess that's the question that remains in my mind, is what kind of deal did he make with the feds? Does he have to try to give them someone else? Uh, we can't know that. Uh, I wouldn't be shocked if that turns out to be the case, and I wouldn't be shocked to find out that other local officials may have misused campaign funds from time to time, whether that's to pay family members or or cronies or whatever the case that's may be. That's legal in this crazy state. They can do that. Uh, this has yes. to do with converting it to personal use, as yes. if that's not personal use, what you just described. It's just as outrageous. Candidates paying their family members. That that happens, unfortunately, all too frequently. Yes, I, should have, I probably should have th- <laughs> thrown some extra adjectives in there. And what I meant is that very often what we'll find is that family members were paid to do nothing. Uh, and so that's when it becomes questionable uh, during a campaign. So we don't know. Uh, I, I don't 
I don't like to cast aspersions as I don't think any uh, journalist does without knowing the facts, but we, we won't be surprised if there's more to this story than we know right now. We'll move on to a different topic, but I'll just, since you're way too young to know about this, Elizabeth, it used to be <laughs> in this state that you could actually legally do what, what uh, Ricky Barlow has uh, pled guilty, which is convert campaign funds to personal use. There was a sheriff who converted, I think it was about $180,000 to his personal use wow. and, 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 and and got away with it. And did so, he buy a ranch or what did he? I, I, I'm not sure, but you can do a lot with $180,000, especially about 25 years ago, yeah. which is when this happened. Anyhow, one, one story that I think uh, amazed and outraged us uh, as we were reading it and, and sure got a lot of attention on the site was this story that, that Riley Snyder had about this uh, contract uh, that the DMV led, I think it was $75 million, to a company which apparently wasn't performing. Six of 25 staff people had uh, showed up, and they after our story came out, uh, they canceled the contract just a couple of days uh, later. This is the kind of thing that just drives people insane, doesn't it? Yeah. Who is watching the shop? Why did it take so long to figure out that the contract was not being fulfilled in terms of the staff that was put on site, in terms of the technical support that was promised. I mean, that you know, the contracts uh, of this type are, are pretty clear. The nuts and bolts are easy to follow. It's easy to check the boxes. Uh, it always amazes me at the, the lack of oversight that sometimes happens in situations like this. And it's not until the media, the hated media, you know, gets a hold of a story like this that we find out that indeed tens of millions of dollars have been wasted. This company does it doesn't sound to me like they ever had the capacity to fulfill the contract in the first place. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Mark Hutchison called it a bait and switch, and he's probably darn close to being um, right on that. And this isn't the first time. Remember what happened with the uh, health care exchange at the state level where the contractor initially you know, made all kind of promises about getting us up and running on a system, same darn thing happened. We, you know, we ended up losing millions of dollars. So I think it's time for us to agree as a community of taxpayers that we need to do a better job of oversight and auditing these state contracts, especially where technology is involved, on an ongoing basis. I'm not suggesting another level of bureaucracy, but uh, something more can be done surely than is being done now. I would suggest that the Nevada Independent is going to be staying on these kinds of stories, and I hope people will go to our site because I have a feeling this is not the last one that we, we are going to find. Finally, uh, and we alluded to this during our uh, interview with Chris Brooks, uh, Attorney General Adam Laxalt was the only attorney general in a state uh, that has legalized marijuana not to sign on to a letter to Congress. Obviously, these, these pot businesses have problems with the banking industry because of federal laws and federal regulations, and there needs to be a fix for these states that have legalized it. Clearly, Adam Laxalt was opposed to marijuana uh, legalization. Uh, uh, his, one of his biggest donors, if not his biggest donor, Sheldon Adelson, uh, funded the opposition here and in Florida, whether there's a connection there or not. I'll let people judge for themselves. But this is the law here now. He's saying it's it's premature for him to sign on to it. As I said earlier, this this has been in existence for a while. How can he say it's premature? It's not premature. Uh, and we have a sitting governor who doesn't think that following the existing law uh, is premature. 
um, because Governor Sandoval has been very clear that although he too opposed legalizing marijuana for recreational use, that he would uphold the law, work to do so, and and see that his state agencies and everyone on down the line did did the same. So uh, politics at play here for sure. Uh, Sheldon Adelson, who is one of Laxalt's biggest donors, also against recreational marijuana. So even if Laxalt, you know, let's say he needed a little uh, help in making the decision, uh, had he consulted, you know, he would have gotten the, 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 the kibosh on, on the whole thing. But it's interesting to me because, you know, Laxalt has been the first guy. He's been out in front so many other times petitioning Washington, D.C. in one form or another, whether it's Congress or signing on to lawsuits or, or what have you. He, you know, he's usually a states' rights kind of guy and telling the feds, you know, either hands off or give us the leeway to do what we need to do here on a state basis. Signing on to this letter with these other attorneys general would have fit the bill for him, but uh, he chose to make an exception in this case. That's a great point to bring up that distance. I, I can even think of another one, though, which is, uh, you know, you're a free market person. Uh, you know, uh, this is this is a legal business in Nevada. You may not like it, but you want to take the federal fetters off of a business like this. You want to make it easier easier for them to make money. What's more, uh, they are thriving from all we, 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 we can tell. And there's money from these businesses that's going into state coffers to, that can help fund education and other things. That if they're having trouble with the banking system, if you're a conservative and you care about a business, how do you not apply these same principles to these businesses just because you don't like what they're doing? I'll go you one further. <laughs> um, as the attorney general, uh, he is regularly involved uh, in tracking corruption and fraud. And it, and I'm not accusing anyone of anything with what I'm about to say, but it's much easier for corruption and fraud to be going on in a cash-based business uh, than it is if you have banks involved. That's a great point. I hadn't even thought uh, of that. Where money can actually be tracked electronically through the bank and then federal law kicks in. And then if there were any shenanigans going on, it'd be much easier for the attorney general to figure that out. Elizabeth, always a pleasure uh, banding these issues back and forth with you. Thanks for coming on. Sure. That's all the time we have for this edition of the Indie Matters podcast. I want to know what you think. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, email us at ideas at dnvindy.com. Check out our site if you haven't already. I'll give you the URL again, the Nevada Independent. Com. Also, you can rate us on iTunes and Google and all other kinds of places. And please subscribe. I want to thank Chris Brooks again for being here. And I, as always, I want to give a lot of thanks to our wonderful hosts here at KUNV on the campus of UNLV. I want to announce that our, our hosts here at KUNV are actually going to start uh, airing our podcast, this podcast, Indie Matters, at 8.30 on Thursday night. So if there's some time that you don't have time to download it, you can listen to the interviews segment at least. Uh, but I would suggest clicking on the podcast link because you would miss Elizabeth and me and the headlines at the beginning. You don't want to uh, do that. Uh, thanks for, to KUNV for doing that. As always, I also want to thank Joey Lovato, our fantastic producer up in Reno, who makes us all sound what, Elizabeth? Podcast smooth. Well, at least one of us. I'm John Ralston. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters, and we'll talk to you next week. Next week.